Well, good morning here in person and online. Would you just join us as we worship together? I'll raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I'll raise a hallelujah louder than the unbelief. I'll raise a hallelujah. My weapon is a melody. I'll raise a hallelujah. Heaven comes to fight for me. I'm gonna sing in the middle of a storm. Louder and louder, you're gonna hear my praises roar. That's an awesome hope today, amen. Up from the ashes, hope will arise, amen. I'll raise a hallelujah with everything inside of me. I'll raise a hallelujah and I watch the darkness flee. I'll raise a hallelujah in the middle of the mystery. I'll raise a hallelujah. Fear you lost your hold on me. I'm gonna see in the middle of the storm. Louder and louder, you're gonna hear my praises roar up from the ashes. Hope will arise. Death is defeated. The King is alive. Sing a little louder. 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 In the presence of my enemies. Sing a little louder. Louder than the unbelief. Sing a little louder. My weapon is a melody. Sing a little louder. Heaven comes to fight for me. Sing a little louder. In the presence of my enemies, sing a little louder, louder than the unbelief. Sing a little louder, my weapon is a melody. Sing a little louder, heaven comes to fight for me. Sing a little louder. I'm gonna sing in the middle of the storm, louder. Roar up from the ashes, hope will arise. Death is defeated, the king is alive. So I'm gonna sing in the middle of the storm. Louder and louder, you'll hear my praises roar up from the ashes. Hope will arise. Death is defeated, the king is alive. I'll raise a hallelujah. I'll raise a hallelujah. I'll raise a hallelujah. I'll raise a hallelujah. Let our praise be your welcome. Our songs be a sign. We are here for you. We are here for you. Let your breath come 
shall shout Be your anthem Your renown Fill the sky We are here for you We are here for you Let your word Move in power Let's what stand come to life. We are here for you. We are here for you. To you our hearts. To you our hearts are open. Nothing here is hidden. You are our one desire. You alone are holy. Your fire fall down to you our hearts are open nothing here is hidden you are our one desire you alone are holy only you are worthy God let your fire fall down we welcome you Praise. We welcome you with praise, Almighty God of love. We welcome in this place. We welcome you with praise. We welcome you with praise, Almighty God of love. Be welcome in this place. Let every heart adore. Let every soul awake, Almighty God of love. Be welcome. We welcome you with praise. We welcome you with praise. Almighty God of love, be welcome in this place. We sing to you, our hearts are open one more time. Thank you, God, that our hope is 
is in you, God, that you are alive and well, God. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift that you gave, God. We just, just declare you are a living hope today.
Well, I think you guys all handled like the spring forward thing better than I did because you were all here when I came into the room. <laughs> um, and normally I blame it on my kids, but they're not here, so I can't do that. <laughs> they are in Glendive. I'm seeing their grandparents. Um, sounds like everyone's kind of picked up a little bit of a cold over there, so if you think about it and want to, you know, pray for them, they are all together being miserable. I hope not too miserable. By the way, I think they're watching, so, um, hey, Lise, how are you? Um, all right. So, um, last time we talked, we talked a little bit about, like, the Trinity test and all that, right? And that got me thinking about the Cold War a little bit. And this whole idea in the Cold War of how you had, like, the USSR and you had the United States, and we're all trying to, like, prop up nations all over the place so that people are on our side, right? So we're extending our influence, not by, like, conquering territory, but by more or less buying influence, right? Like, so we sell, peop sell people weapons or give people weapons or we promise people power, um, do all these things on both sides um, in order to gain the upper hand in this conflict, Right? So I've been thinking about this, and it turns out that this idea um, is actually about as old as history, as far as we can tell. So there's a king in um, Tyre, one of the cities on the Mediterranean coast near Israel. His name is Ethbaal. Um, so he's in this situation where he's got this little kingdom, right? And there's this gigantic empire called the Assyrian Empire that's pushing toward the Mediterranean and is seeking to exert influence in this area. And so Ethbal looks around, and he's like, well, what do I do? I better try to extend my influence. Now, instead of doing it the way that we did back in the Cold War, where he's, you know, bribing people and um, trying to give them the best, newest weapons or that sort of thing, the way that they did it at this time was they said, hey, um, why don't you take my royal daughter in marriage, and we're going to intermingle our kingdoms, right? And so Ethbal does this. He sends his daughter Jezebel to Israel. And so he's trying to create this tie between Tyre and Israel so that they can stand together against the Assyrian Empire. Now, a big part of what this will look like then is Jezebel has been trained as a priest in the Phoenician religion, the religion of Tyre. And so when she comes in, if you want to build close ties with someone, well, it's a really good idea to get them on the same page religiously, right? Like, let's worship the same gods. Um, and so she wants to do away with the worship of Yahweh, with the worship of the living God in Israel. She wants to introduce Phoenician religion. And so scripture tells us that she's going around like trying to kill all the prophets of God, right? And she's setting up um, the worship of Baal and the worship of um, Asherah and all the other um, Phoenician gods in Israel. And Ahab the king is just like, yeah, you're my wife. I want close ties with Tyre. Let's do this. Let's go with it, right? Someone does have a problem with it, though. God has a problem with it. Um, and the reason is that God has called Israel out to be different from all the other nations. They're not meant to engage in this game of how do we coalesce power so that we can... Um, stand against Assyria. They're meant to put their trust in the living God to take care of them. They're not meant to go off and worship Baal and Asherah and the rest. They're meant to worship the living God. And so I think as we go through this story, we're going to look at a couple different lessons. Um, the first lesson that we can look at is that God values your loyalty. And as we look at this story, we find that God never abandons his people. But he doesn't always meet their expectations either. Right? Their expectation is that they're going to be this like political player. Their expectation is that God is going to provide rain and material possessions and wealth and um, just prosperity in their land. And as we move forward with the story of Elijah and Jezebel, we're going to see that that's not exactly what happens. But God remains faithful. So God finds someone in this situation where Jezebel's coming in and she's trying to turn Israel toward Tyre, toward, um, and by extension toward Phoenician religion, right? Um, and he rise, raises up Elijah. 
And Elijah just kind of hops on the scene and he says, hey guys, um, so God says there's going to be a drought. No more rain until I say so. Now, of course, Israel wants God to give them rain, right? We've talked about this. Um, the chief deity of the Phoenician religion is Baal. Baal is a fertility god. It's Baal's job to bring rain. That's what he does. And so part of what God is saying is, hey, um, this whole Baal worship thing, let's see how this goes, huh? Um, no rain, right? Now, of course, um, Tyre knew, like, they had droughts sometimes. It's not like it was always raining in Tyre, right? This isn't the Amazon. This is the Mediterranean. So they had this built into their religion where there was the idea that every seven years, Baal had this battle with a god called Moat. So Baal is the god of fertility. Moat is the god of sterility. Or if you want to think of it as the god of death, you can just think of it that way. That might be easier, right? And so they have this big battle, and if Baal wins, then we have seven years of rain and of prosperity and of all the good things, right? If Moat wins, we have seven years of drought and famine and all the things that we don't want so much. And then Baal, there's like this whole mythology around it where Baal is actually like dead and goes into the underworld, but then he gets brought back and all that, right? Um, we'll talk about that in just a little bit, a little bit more, but it's just kind of interesting that way. Anyway, so Elijah says there's a drought. He's confronting Baal's power. But when this happens, the Phoenician religion would just say, okay, so Moat won the battle, whatever, right? Seven years of famine. Here we go. We're going to dig in. Um, and we're going to do what we can to, like, turn it around. But so that might mean sacrifices and that sort of thing, right? Including there's, we don't know for sure, but maybe child sacrifice, um, which is, yeah. Anyway, I read too much about that. And it's, it, it's kind of bothering me. I'll, I'll spare you all the gory details. So. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, God, so Elijah says drought, right? And then God sends him off to um, this brook on the other side of the Jordan. He sends him off into the wilderness a little bit. And so Elisha's kind of hiding out. Then it gets bad enough that the brook dries up, and God sends Elisha to this widow in Zarephath. So we've been talking about how God, he doesn't abandon his people, but he doesn't always meet our expectations. Um, this widow is a picture of faithful Israel. And so God says, hey, Elijah, go and ask her for some bread. And he does, and she doesn't have, like, anything. She's like, all right, um... So here's the deal. I've got just a little bit left, and I'm going to cook our last meal, and then we're going to starve because in case you haven't heard, there's a drought on, um, and I don't have a place to get my next meal after this one. And so Elijah is like, okay, but just, just make me a little bit, right? And she does, and then God steps into that, and her resources are multiplied. She's supposed to like collect jars from her neighbors and she gets oil and um, then she's able to, like there's more oil for every jar, right? Then she's able to sell that oil and she's able to make it through this drought. Um, and so God didn't meet the expectation of, hey, we're going to have rain and we're going to do all these other things, but he didn't abandon his people either, right? Pretty soon after this, this woman, this widow has a son and her son dies. And she gets in Elijah's face about it. She says, why did you come to me and save us just so my son could die? It would have been better if we just starved in the first place. And then Elijah calls out to God, and he prays, and this boy is actually raised back to life. Now, there's something that you guys have to understand about this. Like, it would be crazy for us if someone was raised back to life. But we have a little space for that. Like, we talk about Jesus being raised to life, right? Like, there's something we could do with that. No one in all of Scripture had been raised to life up to this point. This is the first time. God is operating so far outside of the expectations that people could hold that like no one could imagine this right and yet God hasn't abandoned his people but he didn't meet their expectations there's another lesson that we can take from this 
Lesson two, God meets us when we come to the end of ourselves. As I think about my own life with this, I think we need to get honest about something. It's not that every time we come to the end of ourselves, like God raises someone from the dead, right? Um, That would be cool, and I kind of wish it worked that way sometimes, but it doesn't. Usually, not always, but usually where God meets us when we come to the end of ourselves is at the cross. And God says, hey, I might not meet your expectation for what you want to happen here, but I have come to be with you. I have come to enter into your suffering with you. And I have come to walk all the way through that with you to resurrection. Probably not the sort that we're talking about here, but the sort where at the end of all things, God sets things right. So God doesn't ever abandon us, but he doesn't always meet our expectations. And usually that just means he walks with us through the like real stuff in life, right? Um, every once in a while, it means he does something crazy. And we can like, be thankful for that too. All right, I know I'm going really fast, but we're going to keep going um, kind of through this story because I want to see how this truth that God doesn't abandon his people plays out in the story of Elijah as we keep going forward. So um, we're going to skip a little bit. We're in 1 Kings 18 now, the second part of it. Um, and we've got this standoff between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Right? So we've got these prophets that Jezebel has imported. Um, and it's actually the prophets of Baal and Asherah. 450 prophets of Baal. 400 prophets of Asherah. And Elijah says, gather them all, bring them all together. Um, we're going to see which God is the real God. And so he proposes a test of sorts that the prophets of Baal will try to sacrifice a bull. Right? And if Baal sends fire to consume the sacrifice, then Baal is God. And Elijah's going to do the same thing. He's going to prepare a bowl for sacrifice to the living God. And if God responds with fire, then the people of Israel will know that God is God. Right? So everyone agrees to this. And the prophets of Baal start their thing, and they have their rituals as they're crying out to Baal, and they're um, slashing themselves, Scripture says. And part of what's probably going on is it's a drought, so they think Baal might be in the underworld, right? Um, Elisha mocks him. He's like, is he traveling? Um, yeah, well, maybe he's in the underworld, and they have to, like, get his attention and get him to come up, right? Um, so they're doing all these different things to try to make this work, and eventually they exhaust themselves, and it doesn't happen, right? Um, then Elijah stacks the deck against himself, um, against the living God. He pours water all over the sacrifice and all that, and he prays, and fire comes down, It consumes the sacrifice, and it's proved that God is God, right? The people of Israel, they gather together, they rally behind God, and they seize the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah, and they kill them. Um, They're like cleansing Israel at this point. And the story doesn't just linger there. It goes on that then Elijah goes and he prays that rain would come. Now, there's a detail that we skipped over earlier. This is three years after the drought started. So remember, what's supposed to happen is the drought's supposed to happen in a seven-year cycle. Um, so if this is the work of the other god, of like the god of death, right, Mo, it won't, nothing's going to happen for seven years. Well, it's after three years, and Elijah prays, and this storm comes in. He prays seven times. It's not just that he prays once, but he prays seven times, and the storm comes in, the wind picks up, and he tells the king, like, hey, you better get home, because um, this is going to be like a real storm, right? And so once again, we see that there's this way of thinking that people have grabbed onto. Hey, it's going to be a seven-year cycle, right? God, you can't possibly come through for me until this point. And God says, yeah, I don't know about that. Um, This isn't the work of something that you understand, right? This is the work of the living God. And so lesson three would be this. God is not limited by the world's ways of thinking. In our lives, God is not limited 
by what's supposed to be able to work, right? Anyway, we're going to keep pushing forward, and then I'm going to slow down here in just a little bit. So we're into 1 Kings 19 now. Ahab runs home to Jezebel. Jezebel, this is what happened. They killed your prophets. Ahab comes off as kind of whiny to me. Um, and so Jezebel, who is the one that definitely like wears the pants in this relationship, stands up and says, you know what? If Elijah's still alive by the end of the day, like, just kill me. I'm going to kill the man. I'm so done with him. And this is really funny to me. Like, all these things God has just done through Elijah, right? Um, prophets of Baal, prophets of Asherah, gone. Drought over. Like, God's rallying Israel behind him. He's turning people back to him. And Jezebel says, I'm angry. And what does Elijah do? He runs like a beat dog. He's just off. A hundred miles he runs. From northern Israel all the way down to Beersheba. There, he doesn't stop. He drops off his servant, and he keeps going. He keeps going out into the desert, and God meets him in there, there in the desert. Um, so I'm kind of making fun of Elijah as we go through this. Um, I feel like most of us have a Jezebel in our life, right? Something where God can be doing, like, all these amazing things in and around us. And this one thing pops its head up, and we just run the opposite direction, right? Now, it's different things for all of us. It might be, we talked about anxiety last week. It might be anxiety. It might be fear. It might be some sort of sin. It might be concerns about wealth and will there be enough. It might be pride. It might be concerns about those people, whoever they are, um, that are going to ruin something, right? But most of us have something that when it raises its head, it so fills our imagination and our vision that we can't see what God's doing anymore, right? That's a Jezebel. And it sends us running the opposite direction of where God has called us. So what happens when Elijah meets his Jezebel. Well, he runs. He finds himself in the wilderness, in the desert. God meets him there. And the Spirit of God sustains him. He's like fed twice because he's going to go on this journey, and it's going to be a lot. And then God draws him further out into the desert to a place called Mount Horeb. And Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. This is the place where God gave Moses the law, the Ten Commandments. This is the place where God told Israel what it means to be his people. This is the place where what Israel is meant to be, that they're not being, um, because of Jezebel's influence, where it all started, right, for Elijah. And so he gets to Mount Horeb. And he finds a cave, and he spends the night. And before we keep going, I want to spend a little time um, just getting inside Elijah's head and some of the background that he would have for this place. So let's look at some of those Exodus scriptures. So when um, Moses and the people of Israel got to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, um, when they were wandering through the desert, it was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. So the glory of God was so strong on that mountain as like physically affected, right? And so this is something that Elijah's thinking about as God's drawing him to Horeb. Let's go to the next one there. So later in this story... Um, Moses has been given the law, and there's been some back and forth. And then Moses said to God, now show me your glory. And so then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face not, must not be seen. 
And so this happens, and then when Moses comes down the mountain, Scripture says his face was glowing from this encounter with the glory of God. And so as Elijah comes to this mountain, and he finds this cave, and he spends the night, I, I imagine he had to be thinking about that cleft in the rock, right? What is God going to do? What is God going to show me? Is it time to start all over again? In the story of the giving of the law, Moses goes up on the mountain, right? And well, he spends a couple days up there, and while he's up there, the people of Israel are like, okay, what's going on, Moses? Um, he's not coming down, so we're scared of what's going on there, so we're going to make our own gods, right? And so they make this calf that they start to worship. Um, by the way, Baal, he's a, his symbol is a bull, so there's some parallels even there, right? Um, so Moses comes down, and God says, I've seen these people, and they are a, they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, Moses, so that my anger can burn against the people of Israel, and I may destroy them. Then I'll start over, and I'll make you a great nation. Now when this happens with Moses, Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you've brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it is with evil intent that he brought them out? And so Moses intercedes before God, and the people of Israel are saved. And then Moses comes down to the camp, and he says, who's with me? Who's still for the living God against this um, idol that we've created? And the Levites stand up, and they go through, and um, there's a cleansing that happens in the camp. All right, let's talk about Elijah now with that in the background. So 1 Kings, starting in verse 9. So Elijah is on Mount Horeb, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replies, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. So what's he saying? He's saying, God, Moses stopped you once, but it's time now. I'm the only one left. Let's start over. What Jezebel is, has done in Israel is so bad that there's no coming back from it. It's time to do something new. His vision is so filled by Jezebel, that even though he's just come off Mount Carmel, right, even though he's just come off God ending the drought, all these things that God has just done, he's so stuck on what Jezebel is doing, he can't see it. All right, let's keep going. So question, yeah, what's your Jezebel? Um, First Kings, um, just going forward. So the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. So he's thinking about the story of Moses right now, right? And the glory of God coming by. So then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. Remember this, the mountains shaking, right? When God's giving the law. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. Remember the smoke around the mountain, right? Remember the fire that came down when he's um, in this confrontation with the prophets of Baal. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out, and he stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Let's stop there for just a second. So what's happened here is God has exposed Elijah's expectations. And he said, nope, I'm not doing that. And I'm not doing that. And we're not doing that either. This isn't about 
my power coming down and starting things new. This isn't about um, a repeat of what happened on Mount Carmel. This isn't about all the things that you think it is. And it's not, by the way, Elijah, that you're the only one left and that it's time to start over. So he asked Elijah again, Elijah, what are you doing here? We'll go to the next slide here. And Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. It's exactly the same thing he said before. Exactly word for word. God has just come down on Mount Carmel. He's just started to turn the Israelites' hearts back to them. He's just ended the drought. He's just showed up for Elijah and said, hey, we're not doing all the things that you think you need to do. And Elijah says, no, God, you don't understand. It's this bad. I'm the only one left. Jezebel's one apart from me. He can't see what God is doing because Jezebel fills his vision, fills his heart, it fills his imagination. Go to the next slide here. So then the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus when you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, from Abel Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. There we go. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed them. And so what God tells Elijah to do is, hey, get on with it. <laughs> like, you think it's this bad. It's not. I have a plan going forward. This is your part. You go, you anoint this king, you call Elisha, um, you do your bit. You be faithful to me in the day-to-day -day pieces. And you let me worry about Jezebel. She doesn't come up here, right? In New Testament language, we might say what God is telling Elisha to do is to just refix his eyes on Jesus. We can go back to Hebrews. Thank you. Um, so Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So as we're, our Jezebels fill our vision, right? And we say, God, you have to do something about this right now. We can't do anything else until you address this problem. This is it, God. This is what we have to do. What God says is, okay, stop it. Calm down. Take a deep breath, right? Fix your eyes back on me. And you be faithful in what I've called you to do right now. And let me deal with Jezebel. Get on with it. 
No, God, you have to show up. We need the fire. We need the earthquake. We need the wind. We need things to be started over. We need a, something fresh. Okay, how about you do the next thing that I've called you to? Right? How about instead of looking at that thing that fills your vision, you look at Jesus? How about you remember the cross? that God meets you in those hard spots? How about you remember the resurrection, that the cross is never the end of the story, even if sometimes it takes a long time? In Hebrews, um, it goes on to talk about how we have not yet resisted sin to the point of shedding of blood. And it goes on to talk about how God disciplines his children. Sometimes our Jezebel is sin, right? Um, sometimes the thing that we want God to address is, God, you need me, you need to help me through this sin, right? And when that's the case, what God says is, press into my discipline. We don't like discipline, it's a hard word. Um, pay attention to the way that I'm showing you what your sin does in your life. This is good discipline, right? Healthy discipline is about teaching. The discipline that God gives us is about teaching. And as we press into God's discipline, we're given power to confess. And when I say confess, I don't just say, mean, hey, God, um, what I'm doing is wrong and you need to save me from it and that thing, right? Um, which is good. There's nothing wrong with that. But when I say confess, I mean um, speaking with God. The word literally means in the Greek to say the same thing as. So to agree with God about what your sin is and the consequences that your sin has in your life and the lives of the people around you. So as we fix our eyes on Jesus and we press into his discipline and we really pay attention to that teaching, we're able to confess with God and say, God, this is what's going on in my life and this is how it's affecting my heart and this is how it's affecting the people around me. And as that truth takes root in our heart, that truth transforms us. And we're led back to the cross where we're able to let go of the sin. We're able to die to the sin and move forward into what God has for us. Some of us are stubborn right here, right? And sometimes the discipline takes a little bit. But that's, that's how it's meant to work, right? And so confession is not just the, hey, God, um, yeah, this is bad. Save me. But it goes beyond that. It says, yes, God, what you say about my sin and the way that it affects my life is true. I agree with that, and I'm going to build my life on that truth, around that truth. Right? One final thought for you today. As we face our Jezebels, God doesn't tell us, leave, leave, leave. Like, um, stop paying that much. Like, just stop it. Get away from it. What God says is, come, come, come. Right? So it's not, the point is not so much getting away from Jezebel, but it's getting Jezebel out of the way so we can come to God. Right? So we've got our lessons for today as we've kind of gone through. God values your loyalty. God meets us when we come to the end of ourselves. God is not limited by the world's way of thinking. And fix our eyes on Jesus. And the big truth that I want us to take away is that God never abandons us. But he doesn't always meet our expectations.
Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God that operates outside of what we expect, outside of what we're able to grasp and plan for. We thank you that you are not a domesticated deity, um, but that you are a father who loves us and knows what's best for us, even when we don't know that ourselves. We thank you that you are a father who disciplines us, who teaches us, and who shows us um, what brings death to our lives and then who shows us what brings life to our lives and who brings that to us, who meets us in our hard spots, um, walks with us through it and brings us life. We thank you for the story of Elijah, for what you did all those years ago, and we thank you for the truths that it still has for us today. We ask that you would transform us, that you would remake us in your image. Turn our hearts toward you. Amen. Oh, Lord, you've searched me. You know my way. Even when I fail you, I know you love me. Your holy presence surrounding me in every season I know you love me I know you I bow my knee where your blood was shed for me there's no greater love than this you have overcome the grave your glory fills the highest place what can separate me now you go before me you shield my way your hand upholds me and I know you love me I know you I bow my knee where your blood was shed for me there's no greater love than this you have overcome the grave your glory fills the highest place what could separate me now you tore the veil you made a separate me now 
cross. At the cross I bow my knee, where your blood was shed for me. There's no greater love than this. You have overcome the grave. Your glory fills the highest place. What can separate me now? God, I thank you for the the promise that you have given us, Lord, for the word that you have just laid on our hearts today, God powerful and I just pray God that you just help us examine to the depths of our hearts today God as we just think on scripture God think on your words for us today and God in knowing that you love us so much help us to really know that this week God that you have good for us And we love you, Jesus, and I just pray your blessing and your favor on every home that's represented here today, God. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Have a great week.